Well, I hope you picked up a, a copy of the uh, sermon notes as you came in. And uh, I was about to say, well, today we're going to complete the message I began last Sunday. Let's just right now say we will continue the message. And it may take me one more uh, Sunday to finish this message on becoming fishers of men, which is part of a larger sermon series entitled Keys to Spiritual Growth. Uh, we are focusing on the invitation that Jesus extended to Peter and Andrew in Matthew chapter 4, verses 19, uh, 419, which changed their lives uh, forever. It is an invitation that Jesus still extends today. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. In this simple but very direct invitation, uh, we discover God's plan for the believer, God's purpose, and God's promise. Now, last Sunday, uh, we took a good bit of time just looking at the historical occasion in which Jesus extended his invitation to Peter and Andrew. And then we only had time to cover uh, that first point that you see there in your sermon notes, answering that question, well, what is God's plan for my life? And of course, the answer to that question is the first two words of Jesus' invitation, follow me. That's God's plan for every believer. Simply follow Jesus. Well, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, that was our focus last Sunday, and we uh, looked at those uh, three points there in your notes. So let's just quickly review. To follow Jesus uh, first begins by uh, the fact that I trace my life after Jesus. Uh, as a believer, I've been predestined, as it says in Romans 8.29, to be what? Conformed to the image of of Jesus Christ, to become like Him in order to put Him on display before the eyes of a lost world. Romans 8, 28, uh, uh, 29, I'm sorry, uh, reads this way from the paraphrase, the message, God decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who love Him along the same lines as the life of His Son. We see the original and intended shape of our lives there in Him. Second, to follow Jesus is to turn away from all distractions. Luke chapter 9, verse 62. Anyone, Jesus said, anyone who lets himself be distracted from the work I plan for him is not fit for the kingdom of God. So to follow Jesus is to trace my life after Jesus, to become like him, uh, to turn away from all distractions. And then third, to follow Jesus is to stay tuned in on Jesus. Uh, Philippians 3, verses 14 and 15, I've got my eye on the goal where God is beckoning, beckoning us onward to Jesus. I'm off and running, and I'm not turning back, so let's keep focused on that goal. And then we saw the key application, the God I communicate to others is not the God I talk about, but the God whose life I live out. I need to be the real deal. I cannot impart to others what I myself do not possess. And therefore, God wants to form His life in me to demonstrate His reality to a lost world and to provide the credibility to be able to what? Verbalize the gospel and to share it with power. We closed the message last week 
by looking at one other passage, which is not in your sermon notes. Uh, Mark chapter 8, uh, verses 34 and 38, which clearly tells us what's involved in following Christ. And in that passage, uh, Jesus gives a command to follow him. And then he gives, we saw last week, three incentives to follow that command. The passage reads this way. And he, Jesus, summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, and remember we saw in the Greek text, it literally reads, If anyone wishes to follow me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And again, it sounds like it's Jesus is being redundant, but he is. If anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And the reason he does that, he's putting the focus on denying yourself and taking up your cross. He's saying, you're to follow me, and this is the way you are to follow me, by denying yourself and taking up your cross. And then he gives uh, the incentives uh, for doing so. He says, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And then the second incentive, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And then the third incentive, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Bottom line, Jesus followed a path that led to the cross, where he sacrificed his life for you. Therefore, to follow Jesus means you too will be led to the cross, where you must sacrifice your life for him. When Jesus died on the cross, his blood sanctified the cross. His blood set the cross apart. It transformed the cross into an altar where we lay down our lives as living sacrifices. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, as you look at the gracious salvation God has given to you, this is how you are to respond to that gracious offer of salvation, by presenting your bodies, all you are, all that you possess as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And the only reason God can find your sacrifice acceptable, the only reason He sees it as holy is because of that blood that sanctified the cross. And so whoever comes to the cross through faith in Jesus embraces that cross is declared holy, is declared acceptable to God. And then that goes on to say what? We're not to be conformed to this world. We're not to be squeezed into this world's attitudes and thinking and values and perspectives, character and conduct, but we're to be transformed, changed through the renewal of our minds, the power of God's Word, the power of the Holy Spirit. To why? To prove what is that good and perfect will of God for our lives, to follow Jesus, to follow Jesus. So in Mark 8, Jesus is saying, bottom line, hey, before you attempt to follow me, count the cost. Count the cost. Are you willing for my sake? Are you willing for the sake of the gospel to embrace the cross and have called upon a life 
of suffering? Are you willing to be pierced by hostility from this world? To be wounded by humiliation? To suffer mistreatment and even die for me? And Jesus basically saying, well, if you're not, then do not play games with me. Just go ahead. Follow the world. Pursue the world's acceptance, the world's applause, the world's pleasures, the security this world can offer you. You cannot follow me and the world at the same time anymore than you can walk in two directions at the same time. And why would anyone turn away from all that the world offers to embrace suffering with Jesus, to embrace a cross what Jesus did provide the incentive also in Mark 8. He basically says, well, if I attempt to save my life by avoiding the cross, by denying Jesus in order to follow the world, I will what? Lose my life forever. But if I lose my life by embracing the cross in order to follow Jesus... I will save it what? Forever. Now, let me just add before we move on, and I, I did not mention this last week, do not make the mistake to think that Jesus saying you earn salvation through self-denial and suffering. No. Jesus is simply acknowledging the fact that who or what I am willing to suffer for reveals who or what I truly love and value most in life. That's what he's saying. He's just acknowledging that simple reality. Denying self and following Jesus demonstrates the authenticity of my faith, demonstrates the authenticity of my love for Jesus, my surrender to Jesus. For example, in, in Philippians 3, uh, after Paul describes his life before salvation, when he attempted to earn salvation through his good works, you know, he describes that. Then he describes his conversion to Christ this way. Listen to the, his words. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things loss in view of what? The surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law through good works, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith." Why? That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings and being conformed to His death. So what is God's plan for my life? Follow Jesus. I follow Him by tracing my life after Him, turning away from all distractions, keeping tuned in on Him to follow Him wherever He leads. Now look at the second major point there in your notes. What is God's purpose for my life? And we discover that in the invitation in Matthew 4.19. Jesus said, follow me, and if you do, I will make you what? Fishers of men. 
follow me and I will make you fishers of men. God's purpose for every believer is to make us a fisher of men. Well, what does it mean to be a fisher of men? Well, that first point, to be a fisher of men is to catch people for Jesus. To catch people for Jesus. Now, last Sunday, we looked at Luke chapter 5, verse 10, uh, which again was, uh, the larger context was that occasion when he called Peter and Andrew to be fisher of men. And he, and he told Peter, Peter, do not fear, for now on you'll be catching men. Notice those words, do not fear. Circle those, do not fear. Now let's just have a very honest, trans moment, transparent moment with one another. Most Christians, including your pastor, will confess there is probably no area in our Christian lives where we feel more f- fearful or inadequate than in the matter of sharing our faith with the lost. We want God to use us to win others to Christ, but we struggle with our neglect in this area. We regret missed opportunities. We grieve over the fact that we seem to lack compassion for the lost, and we just tend in this area to to stay overwhelmed with, with guilt and failure. And when we hear a sermon on evangelism, what we tend to do is recoil in fear, fearful that we're going to be pressured to do something that we don't feel comfortable doing. Now, the reason I say all of this is that it is somewhat freeing, just to get this out in the open, that we're scared. And we tend to be cowards when it comes to sharing our faith with others. And we need to admit, we're all in the same boat. We all struggle. Just like Peter struggled with his fear and inadequacy, we, we struggle. And I definitely have no desire to reinforce our failure or to create more guilt through this message. I pray we'll, we'll be freed from the paralyzing effect of guilt in personal evangelism. I pray we will experience God's grace in the midst of our fear and inadequacy, that we will grow deep in our love for God and others because the Scripture tells us that it's love that casts out fear. The more I love Christ, the more I am satisfied in my relationship with Him, the more natural it will be to commend Christ to others. And the more I love others, I will find the motivation to overcome my fear and seek their eternal welfare. So look at the next three bullet points in your notes to discover what exactly it means to catch people for Jesus, for Christ. First, to catch people for Christ begins by focusing on the value of lost people. It begins with altering our thinking, the way we look on people, the way especially lost people. To catch people for Jesus begins by focusing on the value of lost people. Take your Bibles. This reference is not in your sermon notes. Uh, Turn to Luke chapter 15. Just want to point out a couple of things. Luke chapter 15. 
In other words, what we're saying is we need to really become deliberate and intentional in adopting Christ's attitude towards the lost. Luke chapter 15, look first at the first two verses. Now, it says, now all the tax gatherers and sinners were coming near him to listen to him. That's referring to Jesus. So all the tax gatherers and the sinners, in other words, the outcasts of society, the ones that uh, were met with disdain from those legalistic Pharisees, they, they were coming near to him to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes, they began to grumble. They began to complain when they saw this. They actually, and they said, this man receives sinners and eats with them. That word receives, in the Greek text, the word there that's translated receives, it, meant, it literally means to eagerly look for and then to welcome as a friend. So what that is saying is, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, He eagerly looked for sinners and He desired to befriend them, to be with them, to socialize uh, with them, to be in a position, of course, to minister to them. Now, so, so the Pharisees grumble. We, we, you know, we just don't get this. We, don't, we just don't understand why these individuals are so important to you, why they seem to be so valuable to you. So Jesus turns to them, and he gives three stories. Boom, boom, boom. Three parables that you're all familiar with. The first one, well, let's just read the, the, the first one. Verse 3, and he told them this parable. What man among you, so he's appealing to them. He says, you ought to be able to understand this. If he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost. And he goes after the one into lost until what? He finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, what? Rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Verse 7, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And then right behind that, verse 8, Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I have lost. Verse 10, In the same way I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Notice the similarities in those parables. They both lost something. They both diligently searched for that which was lost until they found it. And then when they found it, they rejoiced. So Jesus is saying, hey, Pharisees, you ought to understand why these folks are so important to me, why they're so valuable to me. Just look at life. We tend to value that which we lost. Like the other day, I couldn't find my keys. I tore up my house looking for my keys. Suddenly they became the most valuable, the most important thing in my entire life. And, and that's all Jesus is saying. He says, when we lose something, 
All of a sudden, it becomes viable. We want to find it. When we find it, we rejoice in it. And he says, Pharisees, don't grumble. Don't complain. These are individuals that are lost, that need to be found, restored to the Father, brought salvation. And then, of course, he goes right from there into the parable of the what? The prodigal son. And, you see, and, and we won't read that entire parable. But again, look, look, look at the conclusion. Remember, the son goes off into rebellion. The father's heart is broken. When the son comes back, the father's there with open arms, greeting him, and he rejoices. And in verse 24, the father says why he's rejoicing. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to be merry. So, the simple point is, since Christ focused on the value of lost people, since he focused on their need to be found, to be saved and restored to God, as a follower of Christ, I need to adopt that same attitude. I need to begin to look at lost people different. I need to begin to look at them as God looks upon them. As important, as valuable, is those lost that need to be found, saved, and restored to God. And let me also call your attention to the fact that the value you place on something is often seen in what you're willing to pay to acquire it. And what did God pay? to buy lost people out of Satan's captivity to become his possession. Peter wrote, we were redeemed. We were bought with what? The precious blood of Jesus Christ. That is how valuable people are, lost people are, to God. Now, it's important to add the value God places on lost people says more about the wonder of God's love than anything attractive in us. Amen? The wonder of God's love. But if God values lost people to the extent He sacrificed His Son as a ransom to purchase their freedom and adopt them into His family, what implications should that have on me as a follower of Christ? One who's attempting to trace my life after Christ. To turn away from all distractions. To join him in his work. To stay tuned on him. Well, first, I must never forget that I once was one of those lost people. Therefore, I should continually be rejoicing in God's unmerited grace and unconditional, unconditional love. Amen? Amen. But should not this also have an impact, again, on the way that I look at lost people? Should not I see them as object of God's love for whom Christ died? People who are important to God should also be important to me. This perspective should impact all my relationships with lost people, whether in my neighborhood or in the workplace or in the school or wherever my path crosses lost people as I follow Jesus. I think of Philippians 2, verses 3 through 5, that you see there in your sermon notes. Here it is. This is the attitude of Christ we need to adopt towards the lost. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, 
But with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as what? More important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Luke 19, verse 10. Jesus says, for the Son of Man, referring to himself, has come. Has come why? To seek and save that which was lost. And then in John 17, verse 18, Jesus prays to his Father for you and I. And he says, as thou didst send me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. So to be a follower of Christ means I recognize I have been sent into this world. For the same reason Jesus was sent into this world, to seek and save those who are lost because they are valuable to the Father, valuable to God. He desires to find that which is lost, to save them, to restore them to himself. Look at that next bullet point. To catch people for Christ, I must free myself to go fishing for lost people. I must free myself to go fishing for lost people. Again, Christ's example, Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, talking about Jesus, who although he existed in heaven in the form of God, he did not regard what equality with God a thing to be selfishly grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. In other words, this ain't ever going to happen until we get intentional and deliberate about it. In other words, I have to realize this is my calling. Therefore, I need to become intentional. I need to become very deliberate as Jesus was intentional, as Jesus was deliberate in making the choice to leave heaven, to come to the ghettos of this sin-cursed world to bring salvation to man. I must make that choice to be deliberate and intentional to begin to focus more on lost people, to look for opportunities to engage with them. As the Great Commission can be summed up in those two words. What? Go and tell. Go and tell. You have to go fishing, right? The fish don't come to you. Fish don't jump in your bathtub in your home for you to fish. You got to go to where the fish are. That's all I'm trying here. here. Just, I'm trying to make the, the simplest point imaginable that it's not going to happen until we realize the value of lost people and realizing their value Therefore, I'm willing to invest time. And that takes us right to the next point. And these two should be together. To catch people for Christ is building relationships. Building relationships with lost people. And earning their respect in order to gain a receptive hearing of the gospel. Let me read that again. To catch people for Christ is building relationships with lost people. And again, that's not going to happen unless I become intentional and deliberate. And I build that relationship to be able to earn their respect in order that I will gain a receptive hearing of the gospel. Philippians 2, verses 7 and 8. Talking about Jesus again, being made in the likeness of men. In other words, he, he was deliberate. He was intentional. And being found in appearances of man, what he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In other words, Jesus, again, left his home in heaven. He became one of us so that he could... Relate to you and I. Build relationships so that we would see him, get to love him, honor him, obey him. Going back to Luke 15, verse 2. This man, what? Receives sinners and what? 
eats with them. There it is. There it is. Relationship building. Jesus realized the importance of getting up close and personal with lost people so that he could get to know them, they could get to know him, and in getting to know him, gain respect, and their hearts soften and be prepared to hear the message of who he was and why he came. I love 1 Corinthians 9 verse 22. I have become all things to all men that I may by all men save some. That's not talking about compromise. It's just talking about being willing to come alongside people, to identify with people, to get close with people, to relate with people. A great example of this is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Take your Bibles and turn there. Great, great example out of the Apostle Paul's life. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 through 13. But let's just begin reading at verse 7 for the sake of time. Verse 7. Look at this great example of relationship building. He says, he said, he's, 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 he's going back to when he first came to Thessalonica. And he began to, to minister to those lost Gentiles. Uh, to be able to bring them the gospel. And, of course, you know through his ministry there that he established a very strong and vibrant church. And in recalling that, he says, But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having thus a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives. Because you have become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children that you walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. You see what Paul does? He, he uses the analogy that he became like a mother and he became like a father to them. And his whole focus was building a relationship with them. He said, you became dear to us. You became precious to us. We felt affection for you. So much so, it wasn't just about preaching a message to you. It was giving my life to you. And, and as I gave my life to you, you were able to see the reality of Jesus in me. Again, as I mentioned earlier, through Paul's life, he brought Christ up close and personal to these folks. Where they could see the reality of Jesus. And as a result of seeing Christ operative in Paul's life, it created a hunger and a thirst in the hearts and lives of those Thessalonians to know the God that Paul had come to know, to know the salvation Paul had come to know, to know the change and the transformation that Paul had come to know. But it, but it began with relationship building. So to catch people for Jesus begins by I have to begin focusing on the value of lost people. I, I need to begin to change how I think about people. And, and, and then as I move about, I see these as lost people that need to be found and to make myself available to Jesus to what? 
build relationships with them. And that's not going to happen until I free myself to make the time to do that, to get engaged with their lives, to earn their respect, to gain a hearing for the gospel. And then look at the second truth. Well, what bait do I use to catch people for Jesus? In other words, as I gain this relationship with them, as I earn their respect, as I get to know them, they get to know me, well, what's the bait that I use to catch? It's, and it's my testimony. It's my testimony. That's all God has asked you to be. You don't have to be any great preacher. You don't have to be any great teacher. You're just to be a witness. And a witness is what testifies about what he saw, what he experienced. And, and God just wants you to witness, to testify about what God has done in your life, the difference that he's made. And, and, and you'll see there, there are four aspects to a person's testimony. What my life was like before I met Jesus how I realized my need for Jesus, how I received Jesus in my life, and the difference Jesus has made in my life. And take that little outline. And again, be deliberate and intentional. Think about that. And I would advise every believer, just get to where you could, you could briefly express all of that in about three minutes. Now, many times you'll have a much longer time to, to go into greater detail, but, but, but get it where you can express all of that in three minutes. And then I guarantee as you build relationships, as you engage with lost people, as they get to know you, you get to know them, God will open the door. And most of the time as they begin to ask you questions, that door will open. I'll give you a great example of this. Uh, years ago, many of you know our daughter, uh, Carrie, who uh, her husband, Robert, is the pastor at uh, Highland Community uh, Church, and uh, they're just doing a wonderful work there. But when she graduated from college, she went as a missionary uh, with campus, what was called Campus Crusade then, which is now called Crew, uh, in inner city missions in Chicago. And uh, the mission she got involved in was called the Agape Center. And it was literally in the middle of the worst area in all of Chicago, south side, in the south side of Chicago. And, and virtually the worst area in south side Chicago. I'll never forget some of Carrie's stories, how they would uh, go about in the community, and she said you'd constantly hear gunshots, and the people in the community wouldn't even flinch, but they would be ducking, looking for cover, uh, but, but the people would become so used to it, and, she, and, and after she had shortly got that, she was going through orientation, they, they were training them, the, the, the new folks that were coming in to serve as missionaries, and she said, uh, uh, Dad, I, I want you to, to, to pray for us tonight. She says, tonight, between, I think it was 12 a.m. and 4 a.m., we're going to go out in groups, I think it was two or threes, and we're going to go into gay bars throughout Chicago to engage uh, these individuals in conversation. And our leader in this exercise, uh, one of the men that oversaw this ministry, he, he gave them ground rules. He says, you cannot initiate any discussion on spiritual things. You can't initiate any conversation about Jesus unless the person you're talking to opens the door. And, of course, we prayed for it. And then I was fascinated to hear her report. She said, Dad... Uh, I, I believe without exception, she said, the person we were engaged with, they did open the door. We had the opportunity. The, the point is, 
that if we would just be deliberate and intentional in engaging lost people, reaching out to them to build relationships, to socialize, to look for opportunities to do so, believe me, because God loves them, He will open the door. He will open the door. He will provide you the opportunity to bring Jesus up close and personal to them. So here's the key application as we, uh, as we close. And this is a powerful one. The devil really does not care if my life is filled with evil things or good things. He really doesn't give a rip whether I'm, it's filled with evil or good. As long as I stay distracted from doing the work God left me on earth to do, to be a fisher of men. Acts 20, verse 24, but my life is worth nothing to me, Paul says, unless I use it for finishing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus, the work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. So what is God's plan for my life? To follow Jesus. What is God's purpose of my life? To make me a fisher of men. And, 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 and the one thing I hope you take from this message, it's, 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 it's not complicated, is I'm not going to really be a fisher of men and start catching until I get intentional and deliberate. You have to go, you have to, go to the lost people. And then just focus. Don't, don't get all hung up. On, on, on sharing the plan of salvation. On sharing. Just focus right now on just building relationships. Maybe inviting one of your lost neighbors over to your home to eat. Just to get to know them. For them to get to know you. Or, or and, you know, just begin. Just, just step back. This is what I would invite. Step back and just begin to, to evaluate your life. Where do I cross paths with lost people? Where, do my life, where does my life intersect with lost people? And then you look at that, begin to see those people different, begin to pray for them, and then look for opportunities to build relationships. For example, you know, a simple thing in my life, when, when I go to the, to the gym, I go, I go to the gym just about every day and work out about an hour. Well, I, I can honestly tell you, truth like this has totally changed my life, how I see people. When I go into that gym and I, and I see the people, I, I, as I'm working out, I pray for them. And I pray, God, give me opportunity to reach out and build relationships with some of these folks. That I can engage with them. And, and I attempt to do that, to get to know them, for them to get to know me. So that, to provide, so that opportunity opens up to share. The, and it's that type of thing. It's just, it's just beginning to think that way. Look at that way. And then, and, then, and then focus on the relationship. Focus on the relationship. Getting close with them. And then just trust God as you do. He'll just let it all fall into place. He'll orchestrate the opportunity. He'll provide you the grace and the courage to just, just be a witness, to share who Jesus is in your life, what he's meant to you, the chains that he's brought, as a, so that they can see the chains that he can bring to their life as well. Father, um, we do often make this matter of evangelism a, a much too complicated thing which even intensifies our fear 
and our feelings of inadequacy. So, Lord, my prayer for my life, my prayer for our people here at Edgewood, is that you would begin to first change our thinking. Um, that we would begin to look on lost people differently. We would begin to see them as Christ saw them, as valuable, as important, as individuals that are lost that need to be found, that need to be saved, restored to God. So valuable to God that you paid the price of your son to win them back. So, Lord, help us begin to change our thinking and our attitudes. And then as we do, Lord, help us to see just the simple step of becoming more intentional and deliberate at, 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 at looking at how we can engage lost people that cross our paths every week, how we can engage them in conversation, how we can begin to reach out to them to uh, build a relationship. Not that that's going to happen overnight, but where we just show kindness, we show care, courtesy to them, and then uh, continue to build that relationship. And as we build that relationship, as that we get to know them, they get to know us. Lord, we're going to just trust you that you'll, as we make ourselves available to you, you're going to open the doors. Uh, and, many, and most of the time through their questions of us to be able to share a witness, to share our testimony, and, um, and to uh, uh, have that opportunity to uh, wheel them in for Jesus. So, Lord, we, we trust that you'll use us. Lord, you know our weakness. You know our fear. And as we're going to see next week, Lord, uh, thank you that you don't necessarily remove the fear and inadequacy, but in the midst of that, uh, you give the, uh, the grace uh, to step out in faith and to be used by you. And thank you, you meet us in our weakness with the provision of the Holy Spirit. For it's in Christ's name we do pray, amen.